You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. The podcast today is with Nilu Kaur, who is a facilitator, neuro-linguistic programming executive coach, and burnout management specialist. Uh, she has a fantastic new book. It's called Be Your Own Cheerleader, an Asian and South Asian woman's cultural, psychological, and spiritual guide to self-promote at work. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we've done almost 400 podcasts and we've never discussed NLP, which is uh, neuro-linguistic programming, which you are a certified practitioner of. So I actually want to start about asking what is NLP? How is it applied? Tell us about it. Yeah. So NLP is short for neuro-linguistic programming and many people know of it through Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins massaged it and did some things with it, but ultimately it is a, they say it's a pseudoscientific approach to communication, to personal development, to psychotherapy. And it's essentially the, the assumption is that linguistics impacts behavior. So how you speak to yourself and mm-hmm. how you speak to others impacts your behavior. And so there's techniques that are rooted in NLP where you can basically retrain your brain through different ways of speaking to yourself and to others. So there's actual science based on this that I've seen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's and and some of it is of the uh, uh, fake it to make it variety. Again, science uh, around that, and because I think we can see both positive and negative effects in terms of how we talk to ourselves. Correct. 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 Yes, because we can have 
limiting, self-limiting dialogue, which causes imposter syndrome, or we can be our own cheerleaders and have this empowering dialogue. But the choice is yours. And so the idea of NLP is to really reframe the conversations first with yourself before you can speak to others. So then the chicken or egg uh, aspect of this for my question to you is, did you go into that because you were looking to help yourself or had you already been down that train and this is adding to that toolbox? I needed help for myself. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yes, I, and I don't know if we talked about this earlier, but uh, yeah, I used to have debilitating panic attacks and mm-hmm. and I've had my own issues with mental health. So I was determined to figure out approaches for myself. I have it in my family and my, for example, my mom has been on medications her whole life and I've seen the impact of that. Not to say that people shouldn't be on medication. That's not what I'm saying, but I was determined for myself. And so NLP, yoga, Ayurveda, all of these holistic systems is what I've used to help myself. And now I've helped thousands of people with burnout management in the workplace. Okay. So this specific book, and it is very specific though. It goes, it goes broad. Right. You write in the introduction, quote, quiet, submissive, docile, devoted wife and devoted mother are some, not all of the stereotypes that Asian and South Asian women fall into. None of these stereotypes support thriving in the individualistic Western workplace, end quote. All right. So that's the crux of the book. But talk to us a little bit about that and that journey, both for it starts with you, right? This was your experience, both growing up, your parents moved here from India in the 70s to your experience in, in working in corporate America. Yes, absolutely. So Indian culture, Asian culture, South Asian cultures, they're very collective. They're very we-based. It's all about group harmony. And North America is very I-based. So it's very individual. So what happens is whether you are raised in a collective culture or you're raised by folks, your parents that come from collective cultures, it's like you're not really trained to talk about yourself, your accomplishments. You're actually told to just keep your head down. Your work will speak for you. And that does not work in corporate America. If you don't know how to you know, toot your own horn, it is not going to work in corporate America. And I learned that the hard way. And so I was told, you know, keep your head down. This isn't your country. This isn't our country. Just don't stick out. Don't stick out. You just want to be part of, you know, just lay low right? Don't cause any problems, just lay low. And I'm not saying I was, I need to cause problems or others need to cause problems in corporate America, but if we cannot speak up, it's something we just weren't modeled. That behavior is not modeled for children of immigrants or immigrants from those collective we-based cultures. So the premise of my book is really about dancing between the we and the I. So there's there's no rhyme or reason or timing to how I book these podcasts. And I read your book a few weeks ago. And the one I'm preparing for now is by a white cis man, Dan Lyons, uh, the power of keeping your mouth shut in an endlessly noisy world. Uh, and this is him figuring out that while he has been served very well by talking and mansplaining over a period of time, it also almost cost him his marriage and it cost him $8 million uh, when he he wrote a nasty Facebook post about a company that had he stayed in, he just needed like two and a half more years, he would have been worth $8 million. Um, and so I find it fascinating that you've got these, like this one dominant culture that is talking about like, well, maybe we should shut up. And what you're saying in this book is maybe you should speak up. And 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 I think what we have to be comfortable with is that both things can be true. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, it's like, you know, it's a partnership. So if you're a manager and you're a white male manager and you have Asian or South Asian people on your team, 
just being aware of these cultural nuances helps you give the mic over to these folks that aren't used to speaking up. So I think it's, it's, you know, the book, it's interesting. Many people are saying to me that I've read, reading the book saying, I've actually gotten a lot out of this and I don't belong to this demographic or mm-hmm. I'm not a woman. I'm not Asian. I'm not South Asian, but this is really speaking to me because I'm neurodivergent or I'm extremely introverted. I don't know how to speak up. And so it, it doesn't even really have to be about a race or ethnicity thing. It's more around, can you speak up or you, do you know how to speak up is really what it boils down to. Yeah. I mean, this, it's funny because Dan has a talkaholic, talkaholic, that's what the phrase they use, a uh, test that you have to do at the beginning. And I'm like, I'm going to try to do this honestly, but I'm very worried about where this is going to end up with me because I do talk a lot that in, in my field, both, both as a podcast host, but also a comedy that that is not unusual. What, but one of the things that we have learned here, and I think it's the theater part of what, where I come from is uh, how powerful silences can be. And then in improvisation, how important listening is. And I know you studied improv, like you, you took that. And I imagine for you, that didn't necessarily just, it wasn't maybe just about helping you sort of be empowered, but when other people had to listen to you and how that probably felt, that's the experience I hear from a lot of people is that that's a whole other way of being in the world. It was such an interesting experience. So I went to improv because one of my mentors said, you know, Neela, you really need to be quicker on your feet because I tend to take and take time to process information. And so improv for me was more like professional development. But once I got there, I realized, well, yes, when the stage was open, and it was just me. There was like this visceral, like, oh my goodness. Even as a facilitator, I'm in front of groups, thousands of people, hundreds of people, but it's Mm -hmm. a little different with improv because there's no practice. There's no rehearsal. There's just, it's just you in that moment, whatever comes out, comes out. And so, yeah, it was a very improv is hands down for everyone. I think it's really great, especially if you struggle with speaking up. And I imagine like most people entering this, they are terrified to do it. Terrified right? for improv, yes. Okay, yeah, right. You were like, yes. it, but but oh. but then you do it, and you're like, why was I so terrified? Mostly, I think that's the response. One of my clients right now, I've actually, I actually encouraged him to go to improv because he also, and he's a Jewish white male, and he said mm-hmm. he has struggles when he's pitching his work in business development calls. I said, let's just try improv as a, a way to just be quicker on your feet with answers. And he said he was terrified because they had him like quacking and doing all sorts of different noises. And he's like, this is so unlike me, Yeah. but it got him out of his comfort zone. It was almost comical. And I think now he can bring that comedy side to the conversations, his humor to the conversation. So it's interesting what improv brings out for different people. For me, it was just literally like getting comfortable with all eyes on me with no prep, because I'm used to having everything very prepared in advance, especially as a facilitator. I know what I'm going to talk about. I know the content I'm going to teach. As a coach, I know pretty much what the sessions, the topics around the sessions, but in improv, you just don't know what's going to be thrown at you in the moment. Yeah. This comes up all the time, which is this, and I'm curious in terms of, and this is going to be a generational thing. So I'm curious about where, where the idea of being comfortable, comfortable with being uncomfortable um, we're finding that younger generations, it's much, it's, it's harder for them. And I think COVID has a lot to do with that. So I, I, I have a lot of, you know, um, empathy, uh, for this, but it is at the center of our work is, is it playing with those sort of those boundaries a bit. And again, like you, you don't want to go abusive and all that, but, but also it, it seems somewhat essential 
to the work of being an adult, an adult human and growing up because you're going to be in lots of uncomfortable situations that you have to wade through. So I think, I know you could talk about this a little bit from cultural background, but I also think generationally you might have something to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a right or wrong with this. I know what situations make me feel uncomfortable. And I try to just have empathy when I'm working with people saying, yes, like if a performance review conversation makes you uncomfortable, you are not the only one. So let me teach <laughs> no, you the tool. Everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what person says I enjoy a performance review on either side? Correct. That's so true, right? But the the person who's stayed more junior in the in the situation might feel like, especially if you come from a collective culture, you don't know how to speak up about your accomplishments. So it feels viscerally uncomfortable. So those are conversations that we just have to have, right? If you're in the workplace, you are you're going to have to have these conversations. So let me give you the tools to help you do that. But yeah, I I have empathy, but then I also know this is life, and there's going to be situations and times when you're just uncomfortable, and, and you just have to roll with it. Thinking about um, uh, NLP. I, I have a colleague, Tyler, who said something to me, and I, I never. Uh, this is great framing, great verbal framing. He goes, "I want to get people to stop saying I'm, I'm going to have to have a difficult conversation and say I'm going to have a conversation, and the topic might be difficult." And I was like, "Oh, that is very good framing because if you go in with conversation, that is immediately setting up something that's pro-social and that is get mostly tinged positively. And then, yeah, there's there's going to be a difficult topic, right? That that seems. I right lo- I love that little. I love that slight reframe, or mm-hmm. or even changing the words around makes a completely different experience as a receiver of that. So yeah, I love that reframe. Um, there was a piece. Okay, this was it. Um, there's a thing you write in the book. This may be sad. Uh, which is, um, quote, another aspect of celebrating success is learning how to internalize a compliment. That made me sad that people can get a compliment, but also not take it in. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Do you, do you struggle with that? I don't. <laughs> That's why it made me sad, because I feel like you can say the most. I have this today. I On LinkedIn. Uh, a former intern, and this is like a while ago. Uh, so I said, I was just thinking about, uh, how kind you were when, when I worked there and that you didn't have to be. I also recall, uh, they just legalized gay marriage and you yelled it out to the whole office how excited you were. And for this is a, a gay person who is just sort of like, wow, that's a, a, like the, it normalized a thing that he didn't think was, was going to be normalized in, in a place of business. And I have been writing that high since I got that note, you know, seven hours ago. That's amazing. I know that that's lovely that you can do that. There's There are a lot of people that struggle with yeah. that. I used to, what would happen if someone complimented me, let's say you gave me a compliment on my sweater. I yeah. would immediately diffuse and say, you know what? I love your glasses. Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. I love your glasses. So it's you almost like it? I would be. I wouldn't even be able to sit with it because it felt so uncomfortable. And then say, no, no, I thank you, but I really love your glasses or I love the way you have your hair today or something like that. It would completely diffuse. And I used to think it was just me. And then I noticed as I was with more and more other, like other Asians and South Asians, it was the exact same thing. I noticed in the rooms, like the conference rooms I was in when a white woman got the compliment, she would, she would diffuse. She would direct it back when men got it. It was, so I was like, not sure. Is it a woman and male? Is it a female male thing? Or is it, a cultural thing. And I realized like it could be, it's both. And like, it can be, yeah. Yeah. It can be both. It can be. And it's just that there are some folks that just cannot take on a compliment and to actually sit with it 
is just something we're not used to. Asian parents do not compliment their children generally, unless they've been here for many generations. It's just something that we're not used to hearing. So even when my book was published, like my folks have still not said, we're so proud of you. They have said, this is good or, you know, whatever, you know, however they will show being proud, but they don't give compliments. And so when you're, when you're raised that way, you just think that's how it is. Which is so the opposite of, (laughs) I mean, American parents, American parents, which like they never stop complimenting to to, to the point of like, please stop. Like, no, they're. Right. Like they'd be like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You finished your lunch. And it's like, do you really need to be proud of your child for finishing lunch? Maybe, I don't know, but it's almost to the extreme. And I think there's one chapter where I talk about how, how it's so different in American culture and in Asian cultures about parental encouragement it's very different yeah 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 i I, it's yeah i (laughs) too personal where i was gonna go um yeah (laughs) uh, a lot of stuff that we talked about on the podcast recently uh and 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 for a little while now is the way especially in western culture we don't give the body its due in terms of the relationship between body and brain and you talk about Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's come up in some other uh, uh, books that I've read. I talked about this idea around a body budget. So t- can you talk to us what, what that is and how that plays in, into the, the book? Right. So, for example, and I think it, it aligns with even the bias interruption chapter, which is mm-hmm. if you're in a situation where you feel triggered in any way, whether it's a conversation where there, you know, you're, there's something that happened in the room, in the conference room with the team. If you are feeling triggered, the idea is to check in with yourself and ask yourself what you need in the moment. So Lisa, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's concept is, you know, when we feel fatigued, when we feel triggered, it's like in that moment, what do you need? Do you need to take a sip of water? Do you need to move around? So your body budget is not just reacting. It's really asking yourself, what do I need in this moment? So if you feel triggered by what someone has said to you, it's like, okay, give me a moment. I'll be right back. And then maybe you put yourself off camera. You can even use the excuse like, hey, someone's at the door, right? Like there's all these things that we can do now that we're mostly virtual. But the idea is that you're tapping into that question of what do I need in this moment? Do I, am I so fatigued that I just need a 20 minute nap? You know, some people will just power through the day and they will be fatigued and exhausted and overwhelmed. And it's like, okay, well, what do I need in this moment? And it's such a simple concept, but I don't think we, we all practice it. We just keep moving forward and, and don't check in with our body. Like, what does our body need in this moment? It's so funny. Uh, I'm just making a connection to something uh, uh, that happened earlier today. We had a conference call with my dear friend, Heather Caruso, who was the person that we uh, we did a thing here called the Second Science Project at the University of Chicago, blending behavioral science and improv. Heather's now at UCLA, and she's starting up a new initiative. So we had a big call about what this would be. And I forgot she had given us, uh, she did some consulting work for a thing that we do called Real Biz Shorts. And it's it's ethics and compliance training, but what Second City supplies is short, funny videos that just get to the point. So they have to do all the the reading. They have to figure that out. And the particular video, because it just got sent around. And she's like, I never saw the video. But it was a woman, a black woman having a conversation with a white man. And he uh, puts uh, in uh, air quotes, diversity training. And, and then what shows up is a sort of dark angel on her shoulder, <laughs> ready to fight. And ready to fight this guy. And she's kind of saying, this is Gary. I know Gary. I don't necessarily think we need to fight. Let's kind of try to figure out. Let's try to figure out. And then when they have a conversation, it was like, he actually was like going like, I don't want to put it in quotation marks. How do we do it right? And it was a great example of that sort of like, take a beat. And, and, and you could be disrespected and there's, there's things to do there. But 
often like you're normally not going to win in any regard just going off. And I think that this idea of can we take a beat? Can we try to figure this out? And and that's just not a necessarily a popular flex these days, if that's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's it, there's a lot of debate bait over the concept of the amygdala being hijacked. It's a concept that came out many years ago, but the idea that in the moment when you feel triggered in any way, shape or form and your amygdala is hijacked, the best way is just to take some deep breaths because mm. the blood leaves the brain and goes to the extremities to fight, flight or flee. And so essentially six seconds of deep breathing can get the blood back to the brain. So literally, if you can just pause when you're triggered in any way, I mean, for some of us, we're not so resourceful that it only takes six seconds. It could possibly take longer. But the idea is that you do just, you just breathe, just breathe, and you don't have to say anything. And if that makes the other person feel uncomfortable, you can say, I just need a moment. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just processing whatever and, it is. And yeah. by the way, that might actually be the smart thing of them figuring out they might have said something and course correcting or, I mean, because that's the hard part here, which is human beings say dumb things. I, I, if we're going to, I don't know who's going to build training to change that. I just don't. It's yeah, I get, well, and we're, again, like you said, we're human beings. So we're always going to say things that are uncomfortable. We might offend someone. It's, and especially now, I mean, there's so many things that you could say to offend people. Right. Apparently, so, and yeah. when we're shooting up Budweiser cans. I don't even yeah. really know what that's about. Travis. I yeah. I don't know what that's about either. So the idea is that you know, in every moment, and this is the, this is a presupposition of NLP is that in every moment, each person is doing the best that they can absolutely do. Mm. So if, so assume positive intent and take a couple of moments, take some deep breaths and then readdress the situation when you feel more resourceful. Um, so status is a big thing in our work. Uh, mm-hmm. and it comes up in improvisation. It certainly comes up in comedy. One of the, uh, my, my wife who, who teaches this stuff will often send her students when they're downtown into the sort of uh, the the all the dining places people are having lunch, and and she'll say, look at the tables, and you can probably figure out who the boss is by the way they're holding themselves. Um, and I want you to talk to us about this. The, I had not heard of PDI, which is the Power Distance Index. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. So can you tell us about that? Because I, I this is at play everywhere. Right. So power distance index is part of Hofstede's cultural dimensions. It's one of the six, I think six or seven dimensions. And it's basically the, the premise of it is that in some cultures, there's a bigger power distance. So for example, in Asian cultures, it's very unlikely that you can just walk into someone's office who's very senior and just walk in. Mm. You, you, you know, there's, and here in the U S it's much more like, Hey, can I just grab you for a minute? I need to speak to you about something. So the power difference in some cultures is far greater. And in Asian cultures, there's a bigger power difference. Similarly with elderly, like there's, you know, Mm. you don't speak back. You don't talk back. You just respect whatever they say versus in the U S we know that's not true. (laughs) Right. We know that's not true. That's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, right. That's not necessarily a good thing. But the idea is that when you come from that culture, you may not feel comfortable going up to the CEO and saying, I need to speak to you, even though that's probably what you need to do. You, in your mind, have built it up that there's so there's there's a hierarchy and you can't go directly to to that person. Um, so the, the way you work and the way you communicate and the way you carry yourself is very different if you come from that huge power distance. And so yeah. that's interesting. So, so certainly, and I know this from doing work in Japan, for mm-hmm. example, uh, in, 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 there's just things you, you have to understand culturally to do business like they never say no. 
So you, one of the things we learned is they, they you will not know a business deal is over. Uh, uh, you'll pick it up over a period of time because they're not going to tell you it is. <laughs> and I'm just like, all right, that's that's good information to have. Also, the way you present your card, you know, in terms of the sort of bowing, presenting card, or bringing gifts is a big big thing. All those things, good to know, need to know. But then also some of the sort of power differentials uh, differentials are not cool. Uh, and they're bred of systemic misogyny and racism and things like that. So I think it's also important to have that information if you're ever going to break the cycle, uh, which I think people are trying to do right now. So I'm just curious in your in your own work, like that's got to be a, a a weird push and pull to sort of figure out like, oh, this is happening culturally, but this is also not cool. Yes. And it happens a lot. I work with many companies who have offices in India and I noticed this a lot because they're they're headquartered in the U.S., but there's a lot of employees in India. And so this happens a lot where the Indian employees in India will will just not tell you that there's something wrong. There, there's this fear based embedded in the system. And I believe it's because of this power index. Right. And so I can coach them and I can tell them like, hey, you need to bring this up sooner. But if they're that's just something they're not comfortable doing. Mm. Uh, you also write in the book, quote, because we are the only species that can travel through time with our minds, we can transport ourselves to the past or the future, end quote. Sounds like a superpower, yes. but, I think you're, but I think you're also talking about the opposite. Yes. What I mean by that is, and there's a, there's a technique in NLP called the as if frame. Yeah. So essentially you can imagine as if things have already occurred and work towards those. So the idea is like, for example, in an as if frame that I work with some of my coaching clients, if they're, if they're struggling to figure out what their goals are for the next calendar year, it's like, all right, let's, it's April 7th. Let's go April 7th, 2023. Let's imagine as if it's April 7th, 2024. And talk to me about some of the things that have occurred, right? So you're essentially working backwards and your mind can imagine that it's already mm -hmm. a year ahead. And, and so it's, it's essentially giving yourself a roadmap through your own imagination. Because ultimately, I believe we all have the answers we need internally. Mm -hmm. You might just need someone to help you elicit those responses that you can't elicit for yourself. And the problem we get into that is if we use it to ruminate. So, right, people, like when, and this is the big improv thing, right, where you have to sort of say fiercely in the moment, because if you're spending a bunch of time in the past over things you can't change, or you're imagining this future, which you just don't know is, is going to happen, that becomes this other thing that, that, that can get people really stuck. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I talk about this in my, in my book as, as well, in, in terms of, you know, ruminations and how to get out of that method of or the method to get out of it is meditation, right? It's just to clear yeah. your mind to start fresh in the moment. So yeah. So yes, we can travel forward and we don't want to try. We don't want to live our life through a rearview mirror. We can look back when we need to look back because that gives us data and, and historical data for our lives. But the idea is like, let's, let's keep moving it forward. I can't remember if we've talked about this before. Uh, I had like my first performance review, like almost ever recently. <laughs> Okay. Is, Interesting that you've never had one, but yeah. Well, I've been here, I've been here a very long time and it, like, we didn't have computers when I started. So, I mean, there, there certainly was no performance review. We didn't do budgets. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I mean, someone must have, but they weren't, <laughs> this was not happening in 1988. Right. Uh, so I have, so I got in my head, I got in my head about this thing and I was like, and then I checked in cause I'm like, this is so ridiculous. I literally just had basically a promotion title change. It like, you know, no one can kind of do what I do. I checked in with other people on the team who laughed at me, but all of them sort of had the same sort of anxiety and I went and it was fine. 
Um, we talked about performance reviews. So I'm just saying, like, it affects everyone. You you had a <laughs> you had a bad performance review. <laughs> The one I, I mean, said, yeah, the one I talked about with the yeah, because I mean it has a whole. You got to tell the whole story because the the physical thing. I mean, this should be a, a sketch on Saturday Night Live. Or yeah, something. it really should be. So I was at, I won't say the name of the company. It was a large financial services company, and my manager brings me into the room, performance review conversation, and I thought I did an amazing job. He he told me I did an amazing job, and then he he puts this face down piece of paper and slides it across the desk. And I pick it, I turn it over and it's like $0.00. Like we did, we had a shitty year. And so our team, our group didn't get any money. And I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it threw me off. Why even do no, that? Exactly. Even- exactly. Why do the paper? Why not just say you did great. Keep doing what you're doing, but we're, we don't have any money to extra money to give out for promotions or whatever. But yeah, that paper, I will never forget that moment okay. when it was just like, wow, 0.00. I it's mean, like I worked my tail off. You I, know? I, I don't think you're going to get a worse performance review. Yeah. So I think you, at least you probably hit the low. If you, and if you do, it is the best story you could possibly tell. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That was definitely a memorable performance review conversation. So <laughs> a lot of the book, especially the latter part of the book, ends about being about resilience techniques. And this is so important today. It's a thing that we used to not talk about. Um, And I thought I was really intrigued by the way you talk about micro level resilience. So tell us, tell us what you mean about micro level resilience. Right. So when we think of resilience, we often think of getting through a divorce or a career change or buying a new home or all of these big, huge moments. And we don't think about the small micro moments. For example, If you open the mailbox and you get a medical bill, that really sucks. And I had this actually happen a couple of weeks ago where I got this bill and I was not expecting it. And I was like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, this is awful. But Mm -hmm. I got through it. I called them. I dealt with it. And I actually had a moment where I gave myself a pat on the back. Uh, It was like, this is, this would have been normally if years ago, if I dealt with that situation, I would have just gone through it. I would have done what I had to do and not actually recognized the amount of effort that I spent on it, even though it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's one bill I got. But the idea of these micro moments is that to celebrate these small successes, because it takes these small successes to create like these macro moment of success, even like divorce. If you've ever been through a divorce, you know, there's many things you must do to get through a divorce. So it's like looking back and giving yourself credit for those micro moments of resilience that you, you had. Yeah. 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 You teach meditation. I do. So hilarious theme in this is like you go do something and then you up mastering it. Yes. This feels like a running theme, which feels funny given. Yeah. All right. You're self aware. Yes. yes, I am. I am. I told you I was on this journey for myself. I, I went to Kabbalah. I went to, you name it. I tried it. Wow, I, you did it all. I did it all because I said, well, I, I'm just not, something's not right. And I need to find some answers. I grew up in a very religious house. I grew up as a Sikh and mm-hmm. always, you know, my parents are very religious. And so I just felt like I had questions that I was just not getting the answers for. So I went and explored. I have gone through almost every religion looking for answers. I've gone to Kabbalah, Ayurveda, NLP, yoga, hypnosis. And then I decided the ones that worked for me, I was then going to use with people. So, so you, I went and got grab, certified. Parts of- exactly. Exactly. And what remains of, of Sikhism? What, what's, what's, what's still from there for you? That's a good question. I, my, one of my favorite podcasts I ever did was with uh, Valerie Carr, 
uh, who wrote See No Stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've had a couple other uh, uh, six scholars. Mm-hmm. I remember Va- Valerie and I, and to the point where we text each other, like we, we sort of stayed in t- It was just there. And, and she's, I mean, a lot of her story was uh, post 9-11 and mm-hmm. having to deal with that trauma. She's a bit older than you. And I don't know how that necessarily affected you, but it was it was it was certainly like not something that was so talked about in the broader culture. And when you put the spotlight on it, was really hor- horrific. Um, and and as we've de- dealt with other sort of anti Asian hate in recent years, this is just it it feels so foreign for certain people, but it isn't necessarily if you look at the history of the country that we live in. Yeah, I think what I've retained, so Sikhs are warriors. We were the warrior mm-hmm. class. And so there's this level of en- like energetic level. So as you know, because you you interviewed Valerie Kaur. So Kaur, Kaur is a Sikh middle name for all women. And yeah. Singh, S-I-N-G-H, is for men. So Kaur translates to lioness. And so I always know that there is a lioness inside of me, even though my ancestors were the warriors and did the fighting. I feel like there is a lioness in me. I can get through any challenge that comes my way. I have always been the most resilient person that I know. And I think that has to come through uh, my DNA as a Sikh. As a Sikh. Mm. In improv, we have a term, follow the fear. And it feels like that's something that you embrace as well. Yes. Absolutely. It's like whatever I feel like is challenging, I will do it. I was told you're not going to write a book and get published traditionally by a traditional uh, traditional publisher. And I was like, no, I'm going to make this happen. Or you're not going to go go to Ivy League schools because you're from immigrant parents. I did it. Like you name it. Whenever I'm told I'm not going to do something, I do it. And I feel like that is from my DNA as a Sikh. So that's what I have with me. I'm not a religious Sikh. I think I'm a more of like an energetic warrior lioness. I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't practice Catholicism, but to say that growing up a Catholic didn't affect me is ridiculously dumb because of course it did. I think like, and I think of my Jewish friends who call themselves Jewish and you're like, right. like, I th- just think in terms of where, where you come from um, is going to be important and affect you. And sometimes it, that means you're going away from it on purpose. Uh, but there's always going to be elements that, that are, that are part of your, it is DNA. I mean, it, it is like it actually is. So that, and that I think as, as one gets older, there, there's a, uh, a tug on that for, for, for certain people who maybe don't want to sort of acknowledge that. And for others who are sort of like, no, I need to make peace. I need to make peace so I can sort of move on and live my life, not in whatever anxiety fever dream I have at that moment. Yeah, I agree. I think it does. I think your background, where you come from, how you were raised, whether you still incorporate rituals and, and ceremonies from that religion, I feel like it does make make you who you are. We always end the podcast by asking for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yes, I have a story where, and it goes back to the mental health. I knew that I needed to figure it out. And so I kept yes anding to different modes of healing. So NLP, yes, and Ayurveda, yes, and yoga, yes, and meditation until I came up with a cocktail that would help me feel better and then go and help so many people. Oh, I love that. So like, so you yes anded yourself I yes um, within, within yes anding the, the other stuff around you to sort of build your whatever your own unique thing is. And, na- and now the idea is, all right, how do I do this for others? Because their path is going to be different they've got to find their own cocktail and they might, they, you know, they might want to make a Negroni and you might be making a Manhattan. I, I, exactly. I should go with this metaphor. 
Well, I think the cocktail is is a good metaphor because it's not just going to be one thing. I think when we think of mental health and the journey that we're all on, it's hardly ever just one thing that's going to that's going to help us when we're dealing with anything and life. Life throws us so many things, and so I think the metaphor is cocktail. Like it's not yeah. just one thing that's going to help you. Yeah, yeah, and the inherent social nature of that because we do we we don't do this alone. The relationships that we build are so crucially important, and I think again. Western culture has this sort of cowboy individualistic thing, which was never true and is, is even less true today as, as reliant as we are on other human beings. Yes. Yes. And <laughs> I love it. The book is called, yes. Be, the book is called Be Your Own Cheerleader, an Asian and South Asian woman's cultural, psychological and spiritual guide to self-promote at work. Nilu Kaur, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Faye. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive